1: Let's get to Russ Kostrick now, BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager. Russ, let's start right here. You've trimmed your equity exposure just a little bit. Walk me through the thinking going into year-end.
2: Good morning, Jonathan. So, you know, it's not not that complicated. I think our view is the stock market is going to end a year higher than it is today, but we are in a period where I think risk is a little heightened. One reason, seasonality. I think people are well aware this is seasonally the, the toughest part of the year. Uh, second, the uncertainty around the Delta variant. And finally, something that, that both you and Lisa have been mentioning, supply chain disruptions. Uh, this, is, this is a big issue. It's affecting the pace of growth. It's affecting prices. Uh, and it's something we're not used to. We're always used to talking about demand in the post-GFC world. But at least in the near term, this is another factor the market's gonna be dealing with. Having said all that, we think these are temporary issues. And looking out six, nine months, stocks are higher than they are today. So where are you trimming, Russ? We've been trimming a little bit of our cyclical exposure. One place we have been trimming uh, are the financials. We were overweight financials earlier in the year, we've actually brought that down. And part of that is the evolution of our thinking about rates. Uh, Ourselves included, been surprised about how tame the long end of the US curve has been. And what we do think we're gonna see some uh, normalization of yields, particularly in real yields, we're not likely to see the melt up that people were worried about earlier in the year. You know, you look at bond market volatility. It's been coming down and down and down.
3: So, Rose, here's what I'm struggling with. A lot of people are talking about this correction, the supposed correction that's supposed to happen that everybody wants to buy. And yet it seems like we've had trigger after trigger when it comes to disappointing data or signs that perhaps Delta is slowing the economic recovery in a meaningful way for more than just one quarter. What's the trigger at this point, given all of that is very well known? Well, I think there
2: are a couple things. You know, one of which we haven't spoken about yet is Washington. Now, I don't think there's anything there that represents a long term issue. We're still getting fiscal support. We're getting obviously a lot of monetary support, but we are likely to get some headline risk as we get later into the month, as we get into October, and Congress wrestles with not only the the budget package and the reconciliation package, but also the debt ceiling. Now again, to be clear, this will ultimately get resolved, but we are likely to see more headline risk than we've been used to in recent years.
0: Russ, I look at where we are now in the optionality forward. As you know, everybody's with their narratives. You've got a narrative. I know it's radically different than <laughs> Jeff Rosenberg's narrative, 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 narrative as well. How do you manage in the multiple sets of narratives that are out there right now? And yeah, Tom, I think this is the
2: the, the ultimate question. You, know, you have to start with a baseline. What is, yep. what is it you expect in the market? Our baseline, I think it's pretty straightforward. Yes, the economy is decelerating, but we expect better than trend and GDP, we do expect inflation is going to be transitory, contain yields. In that environment, with tremendous cash flow generation, we are still very long equities even though we have been trimming. We want some cyclical exposure, we wanna pair that with the secular growth areas that we expect to work for year after year. We're less enamored with duration as a hedge, and instead we look (coughs) to other strategies, whether that's being long the dollar, whether it's using volatility as an asset class. And then you manage from there. You manage as unexpected uh, events change your narrative. But that's our baseline right now.
0: How do you manage? Maybe it's off your remit. I don't think so. How do you manage commodities? John Farrow mentioning Francisco Blanche at Bank of America with $100 oil. How do you manage commodities out one year, out two years, out four years to win? Well, I think it depends on the commodity.
2: Uh, We actually do think that oil prices are going to remain firm in the near term. And we've been having- some tactical positions to take advantage of that in the equity market. Other commodities were less sanguine on. You know, One place where there's been a big change in our portfolio is gold. Uh, 14 months ago, we had a fairly significant position in gold. Today we've reduced it to almost zero. Why is that? Well, because we primarily think of gold as a hedge against equity risk. And that works when you've got an environment when real rates are flat or declining. If part of our view is that real rates normalize a bit that particular commodity is unlikely to work as well as it did in the middle of
1: 2020. Russ, that's really interesting. A hedge against equity risk, but not inflation per se. Why is that, Russ?
2: You know, I, I think this is a very important point. You know, Gold is often spoken about as an inflation hedge. I don't think that's wrong, but you have to look at very long horizons measured in decades, you know, well beyond the investment horizon of most fund managers. If you're thinking about the near term, there are probably better hedges against inflation in the equity market. And rather than own an asset that doesn't produce any cash flow, we would rather hedge some of the near term upside in inflation with stocks that have pricing power in the material sector, in the industrial sector, in the consumer sector, companies that can raise prices as input costs also
1: rise. Russ, really good final point. Fantastic to get your thoughts on your portfolio right now. Russ Kostrick there, BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager.
0: Seriously, up the Mississippi River, up the Ohio River, and this isn't the romance of Pioneer America, this is the next part of this pandemic. Jennifer Nuzo joins from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. I'm looking at the heat map in the New York Times, Jennifer, and I'm sorry. This thing is migrating north, up the Mississippi, up the Ohio. Is it going to migrate to the northeast? This new agony of 1,900 deaths right now a day.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody should um, get complacent. And certainly as we head indoors, because the weather is getting cooler, that raises the possibility that we could see a surge of cases in places that you know hadn't seen it in, in the previous weeks. That said, I'm much less worried about the Northeast compared to the Southeast, which has really been hammered by this virus in part because of the higher vaccination
0: coverage. I'm confused over boosters. John's confused. Yeah. Lisa's confused. We're all confused. The only thing I know for certain, I used to dread going to the doctor to get whatever the booster was because it always hurt more. Is the booster going to hurt more?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. My second shot didn't feel like anything. But if you're confused, you're not alone. I think a lot of America is in part because uh, we haven't had the scientific community come together and formally evaluate these. That's going to happen on Friday's um, with the FDA advisory committee, we'll see what they say. Um, my guess is that, you know, there's clearly a case for third shots for immunocompromised that's already happening um, there might be some evidence for people over the age of 65, um, but I am not yet convinced that anybody else uh, needs it at this time. Dr. so
3: I love that Tom asks the real questions of, is it going to hurt? Do I need a lollipop? <laughs> and that's frankly the question that we're going to be. Yeah, exactly. I'll be uh, answering from our kids. So when we talk about boosters, who do we listen to? Can we trust Pfizer that came out yesterday and made this big presentation on how important boosters are and how your immunity wanes uh, after the initial two doses?
4: I think you can trust the um, FDA committee and the advisory committee of uh, immunization practices will meet uh, next week. Uh, You know, these are um, scientists who are beyond reproach. They'll be tearing into the actual data and looking at it and making their judgments and whatever they recommend. I think, um, you know, I think there's likely to be some some consensus around that.
3: Meanwhile, overnight, we got some news that China has vaccinated more than a billion of its residents, of its citizens. How important is that given some of the efficacy of that vaccination and what we know about that? Yeah, I
4: mean, it is important, you know, every vaccine in an arm is a serious illness um, averted. And although um, the, the vaccines being used in China has probably less protection than others, um, you know, it's still fairly good at keeping people out of the hospital. And, you know, that remains my top line goal for vaccines. That said, um, you know, I think China and other countries are potentially going to be looking um you know, for additional doses in the future. Um, But my overarching priority is we need, as a globe, to make sure we get first and second doses into arms before we even think about the third doses.
0: Jennifer, a question off the remit. Peter Hotez is all fired up that we've succeeded in mRNA for which rich, wealthy nations, but we need to figure out a COVID killer for poor nations, Africa, India, you name the rest, uh, as well. From where you sit in your research, how how close are we to a successful, non-fancy vaccine for the rest of the world? Well, I reject that
4: um, our mRNA vaccines are not appropriate for the rest of the world. Um, you know, they're, they are uh, potentially being used. I think some people worry about the cold temperatures. I think we're learning better about the stability of these vaccines sure. at different temperatures. And also, um, you know, Africa has proven um, its ability to um, maintain a cold chain, Um So we, first of all, need to start doing more with the vaccines we have to improve access. That said, I think there are other vaccine candidates on the horizon that will add to it. I mean, we just simply need more vaccines than we have right now. So I'll take them all. Absolutely.
0: I I, I look, Jennifer, where we are. And again, it's about the booster. When am I going to get a booster? Is a booster upon us?
4: Well, you know, I, my guess, and this is just reading the tea leaves here, is that if the FDA committee um, endorses anything, it may be boosters for over the age of 65, which clearly isn't you, Tom. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that might be the, the next <laughs> that might be the 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 next offering. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I know the president is, is eager to, to push these, but really, we need to let the, the scientists evaluate the data. And again, not distract from our top line mission, which is to get first and second vaccines into arms.
1: Jen, thank you. Got to leave it there. Dr. Jennifer Nuso there, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, senior scholar.
0: This is a really important discussion. Thomas Koster joins us with PICTAE, uh right now, Pictay Wealth Management. And Thomas, you got buried in your note a really, really, really important sentence. You ignore consumer surveys, why?
5: I do, and I think it was the right thing to do because we see in retail sales data that actually the US consumer is fine. And I actually look at uh, credit card data and I see that you know U.S. consumer is fine; is happy to go and spend and take more credit. So I'm a bit, yeah, a bit, a bit more, um, you know, dismissive of recent consumer surveys. I think they are maybe affected uh, by the end of the uh, jobless uh, benefits. But otherwise, I think the U.S. consumer is fine. And I think we have some data today showing that, yeah, the U.S. consumer is fine and can uh, withstand so many headwinds like Delta, like the end of uh, of QE and so on and so forth.
1: It's a tidy number. It's a strong beat. Hesitant to move on from retail sales too quickly, but Thomas, just your view on the business surveys we get from the regional feds. We had the Empire Manufacturing Survey out earlier this week. That was really nice too. The Philly Fed Business Outlook right now, that's a big upside surprise. This is for September. What's the early September data telling you, Thomas?
5: Well, if you look at the NFIB survey, the Empire survey, I think they're actually much better than expected. So, um, you know, the, the order books are actually looking fine. Um, maybe actually too fine because the risk maybe in 2022 is that we have so many orders that actually there's a risk of having some fake orders as companies, you know, order too much and maybe they cancel orders down the line. But I think so far, we're still in the early phase of this, you know, accelerating business cycle. And uh, yeah, things are fine. There are, there are some bottlenecks, I must say, some bottlenecks affecting cars, for instance, but they are very niche products. Uh, otherwise, the U.S. consumer is fine. U.S. manufacturing chains are OK, more or less, uh, you know, g- you know, given the supply chain bottlenecks. But otherwise, the other books look fine. So I'm actually quite positive hmm. on, on U.S. growth, uh, especially in the fourth Take quarter. Take that
1: positivity then and push it forward to the 22nd, the Fed decision. How does this all fold in to that?
5: Well, so the Fed has already well telegraphed that, uh, you know, they they intend to taper before the end of the year. Uh, I think they won't do it next week because, uh, well, first of all, I think Jerome Powell does not want to to rock the boat. You know, he's seeking renomination, so he doesn't want to rock the boat and and move financial markets too much. Um, So he's going to probably wait until November. Uh, but otherwise, I think yeah, the pressure is there to for them to to taper with given this uh, you know strong data and also ongoing strong inflation. I think the regional Fed presidents are going to uh, you know to to want to push towards uh, you know firmer schedule on tapering. Wait. and maybe actually they're going to put hawkish dots in there.
3: Thomas, are you saying that even if the data supports the idea of tapering their bond purchases earlier, that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell would not do so in order to curry favor politically?
5: Well, what I'm going to say is that the Fed is like a super tanker, and you don't change directions so quickly. Uh, So, um, you know, they've indicated they want to do it before year-end. I think they are going to stick to that view, and uh, I don't see any sign of rush coming from Jerome Powell. So, uh, yeah, I think he's going <coughs> to indicate that it's coming soon, but I think he's, he, they are unlikely to do it yeah. uh, next week. Nancy also, yes, we have Lisa. some deadlines in D.C. as well. That's, so.
3: that's interesting.
1: Hey, it's not the only one saying it. I know, but it's interesting to me. It. And the
3: whole idea is, you know, to me, frankly, John, you know, is the data actually backing a taper that they're not going to do because of other
1: motivations? Some, some people are asking that question.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's out there. It's part of the mix of the date and the huge variance we see here in opinions. Tom Koster, the last time I fell off my seat before today was at the Zurich McDonald's when I figured out this is right down from Bahnhofstrasse, where Pictet has their wonderful office, over the price of a, you know, a cheeseburger in Zurich. This morning I fell off my chair because you're talking about a Volker moment you got to be kidding me that we're going to see a Voker moment at a 3 or 4% inflation rate. Really? Well, I'm
5: highlighting this as a risk because I think the baseline is that the Fed will ignore high inflation. And when I say high inflation, it's 2 to 3% inflation. However, the problem may come <clears throat> if inflation comes at 4% next year. Are you kidding and then me? 4%? We're going to panic. Expected,
1: I mean, it's quite unlikely, but it's not impossible, Right. Thomas Kostok, thank you, sir, from PicTech Wealth Management, thank a senior you. economist out there. We've got some good Zurich mm-hmm. stories that I'll share one day.
0: This is a joy for Lisa Bramitz and myself right now. It's Nudge, the final edition. It gets thicker. On radio, I'm showing the thickness here on TV. Cass Sunstein did not want to do this, but Richard Thaler said, we got to do it, Cass. Cass Sunstein, Richard Thaler, Nudge, we're thrilled to bring this to you right now with a laureate from Chicago. Richard, I want to take Nudge and your work over to this crazy baseball season. Your Cubs are in total disarray. The San Francisco Giants are ascendant now, and the gentleman that has driven for the San Francisco Giants experiment is a Berkeley Thalerite. Tell us how the nudge in the behavioral economics folds into the success of the San Francisco Giants.
6: Well, you know, uh, Moneyball really is a book about behavioral economics. And uh, when Cass and I wrote a review of Moneyball, and that's when I first met Michael Lewis. And It was uh, an epiphany for him that the stuff he had been writing about in Moneyball, there was this whole academic field about taking advantage of other people's biases. And that's what led to Michael's book, The Undoing Project. So uh, this makes total sense. Um, And Farhan could have been a very good behavioral economist. Berkeley is one of the top two or three departments in that area, and uh, you know, his, his mother was disappointed he went into baseball and not into economics.
0: Professor Thaler, let's go to the biases and blunders of your informative must-read book, Nudge. Great. What are the biases and blunders of COVID in your update?
6: Well, I must say we don't dwell on COVID. We were writing it in the midst of COVID. And as, you, as we all have learned, it changes every month. So there are passing references. Uh, The publisher said, why don't you add a chapter on COVID? And uh, we knew it would be out of date the the minute the book came out. (laughs) So um, we we talk about it off and on. I I think right now the key thing that we're dealing with is how do we get people vaccinated? And is, is nudging enough? And if not, what else do we need? And and my conclusion is that um, we we've now reached the point where there are so many people with very strong ill-informed opinions that stronger measures are necessary,
3: Richard. I got to say, I thought it was kind of funny that you called it the final edition so you never would be tempted to write this or rewrite this again, and that you thought, well, it is COVID after all, so what else are you going to do? Why not rewrite uh, this bestseller and preeminent uh, book in the behavioral economics field? What, though, was the biggest change in how you viewed the way we make decisions from the first edition to this final uh, edition?
6: Well, a a lot of it was just getting rid of anachronisms. We had a whole chapter devoted to a very clever solution to the same-sex marriage problem that um, just legalizing it was even better. So uh, I think one of the things we stress in the new edition, which is probably two-thirds new, is that exactly this point that sometimes nudging is not enough. and Uh, there's an entire chapter on climate change where we start with saying what we need is a carbon tax or cap and trade. I am with every economist in the world on this. If we don't get the prices right, we're never going to get anywhere. I think it's ridiculous that the, the bill that's going through Congress now has no carbon tax or anything resembling that we're gonna pay $4 trillion and not tax something that um, is killing the world is shocking to me.
3: Richard, you said that sometimes nudging is not enough. Is the answer an economic one, uh, basically causing prices to go up dramatically or is it just a legal one?
6: Well, you know, a basic principle of economics is that it's more efficient to drive behavior through pricing. And this is especially true for climate change because so many of the decisions are being made at the industrial level. How we generate power, how we manufacture, what we manufacture, how do we transport things around the world. These are all business decisions and businesses react if the price of fuel triples. Mm -hmm. Professor Stey. well, you know, it, 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 we, do we want our grandchildren to be able to live in a comfortable world or not? If if we do, we're going to have to suck it up. Sweden has proved that it's possible. Yeah. $120 uh, per ton, and their economy is thriving. We can do it. Yeah.
0: We would love to continue this conversation, but we run out of time, and I'm, I greatly regret that. I've got about another hour of questions for Richard Thaler. He is at Booth School Chicago, uh, the laureate. Uh, a Cubs fan. He's in uh, therapy for that right now. And also the book with the wonderful cast. Sunstein Nudge, uh, the final edition, Thaler and Sunstein. Look for that. Uh, now, this is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight, from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.